0: Welcome to A Load of B.S., the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. Today, as we take a turn in the road towards other areas of B.S., I'm thrilled to welcome none other than Gary Lineker to the show to discuss the psychology of sport with me. For many, Gary needs little introduction, but I'm gonna give you one anyway because that's how these things work. We need a little build-up, some anticipation. Gary was one of the great footballers of his generation, joining his boyhood club Leicester City in 1978 where he played for seven years before a move to the great Everton side of the mid-1980s where he dazzled sufficiently to attract the attention of Barcelona where he played under Terry Venables. Then came the big move, I say with definite bias, to Tottenham Hotspur in 1989 where he won the FA Cup in 1991, a game I attended I may add, before finishing his career with a brief stint in Japan. Gary also played 80 times for England, scoring 48 times. Since his glittering athletic career, he moved seamlessly into media in which his mainstay has been hosting Match of the Day for over 20 years. And so much more, including his famous Walker's Crisps TV commercials and his just-launched TV game show, Sitting on a Fortune. Or as Gary remarked on Twitter, not shitting on a fortune. In this episode, we talk about what self-confidence means to Gary, what Gaza was doing before the 1990 World Cup semi final, what it feels like taking a World Cup penalty, the characteristics that make up a successful dressing room, generalisation versus specialisation, and all of Gary's superstitions. No more fuss, it's time for kickoff. Sorry. Gary, welcome to A Load of BS. It's great to have you along today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great. And by the way, moreover, welcome to new listeners and old. I'm happy you're all with us to enjoy this conversation on sports-related BS. Now, today is the start of a mini-series we're doing uh, on the psychology of sport. And who better to launch that with me than a footballer of superlative standing, both in the English and global game, a player who I watched growing up playing for my team Spurs, I'm afraid, who with them, Uh Gary... Oh Well, let's not digress on, 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 on current news, but who with them, Gary provided the greatest moment of my football life, winning the FA Cup in 1991. Was that, I presume, the greatest moment in your footballing life as well, Gary?
1: Uh, It was right up there, right up there. Regarding the team, yes, definitely. I would say winning the FA Cup was special. Having lost it as well with Everton a few years before, so it meant a bit more. It would have been um, very painful to have lost the second final.
0: Oh, absolutely. And now, of course, for the last 25 years, can you believe it? You've been a smart observer of the game as pundit and host of, amongst other programmes, Match of the Day, which, for those of you unfamiliar, is a British institution. It's our leading <clears> football <throat> highlights show, but it's not your only TV gig by any means. Of course, you're soon to be launching a new ITV game show, I believe, called Sitting on a Fortune, which suggests, Gary, are you in grave danger of becoming a national treasure?
1: I very much doubt it. I think, I think,
0: <laughs> I, I think if you if you've took the uh, if you take the presenting role on Strictly Cut, I'm dancing I think this would cement your position very firmly that is a step too far, step you're, too you're far. Never
1: seen, you'll never see me near that show
0: right okay so I was gonna ask if you've ever been invited but <laughs> yeah, you're you're, um, you're not likely it, to appear at any rate
1: it wouldn't have got past my agent he knows me and also it's a Saturday night I'm generally quite busy on Saturday
0: You're way it, it would be a sharp dash across the studio exactly let's get back on track what I want to get into today is the relationship between sport and the mind for example mm-hmm. how mental state affects performance the impact Act of coaching, what it takes to make a great team and how to counter demons when self-belief and form leave you. So let's start with the subject of confidence and self-belief. How do you define self-confidence? What does it mean to you?
1: I suppose it's having an inner belief in your own abilities in, in whatever shape or form that may be. It's Funnily enough, it's not something I had a great deal of when I was young and making my way in football. Everything I did surprised me. Kept thinking I'd get found out but managed to get through. So I'm not sure it's absolutely entirely necessary to totally believe in yourself but I think that's ultimately probably what it means
0: because I heard you say touching on that you said in conversation with Danny Baker actually on one of your podcasts behind mm. closed doors which I strongly recommend by the way I really enjoy that but you yes. never thought that you were that skillful as you say you'd almost thought you'd got away with huh. your career somehow that your success was really a function of you said pace mm. and calmness I mean by the way not bad qualities to have as a footballer but then you'd say you reflected on it since and you'd watch games back and then you realized there was a bit more to you but over a 50 15 plus year football career apart from being able to run fast and being calm I mean what factors made you successful at the highest level
1: very strong mentally so nothing phased me I liked pressure which is very important for a striker in particular because you're under the most pressure to score goals I was quick with my feet and I was quick my thoughts and that was important I think I was very I've said it talked about calmness but very cold almost cold I suppose in in certain situations and I was very focused and determined and had great ambition the lack of skill side of things was something that I knew that I was not as capable as many of other players that I played with at that time, which is why I always thought that side of things might find me out. But I worked hard on my weaknesses, but worked even harder on my strengths. And I think it was my strengths that ultimately, when I look back at my career, got me through most of it, really.
0: As a striker, which you were, because it strikes me that as one of the confidence-driven positions on the pitch, I mean, do you have to be Mm. very selfish to succeed in that position? Because presumably, to be selfish Mm. consistently, you have to be confident in your own abilities
1: selfish I'm yeah, I'm you need to be selfish I think strikers live for scoring goals and ultimately you're judged by the number of goals you score so within that there's a personal side of the game that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily get from a midfield player because for them it's about defending it's about attacking it's about making passes but ultimately you're not judged for one thing and one thing alone whereas a striker is very much judged by his goal scoring ratio or scoring big goals in big games so within that there becomes a little bit of ego a little bit Bit of self. Importance, But does that translate into being selfish as a footballer? I don't think so. I think most strikers try and do the right thing on the pitch. Personally, I most of the time, if I was one-on-one with a keeper, I'd fancy my chances of scoring more than I would someone else of scoring. So does that make me selfish? Not sure. But yeah, I think you've got to have a confidence in your own ability to score goals. But I don't think you would ever do that with it impacting the your teammates in a negative way.
0: I've got to pull you up slightly because I'm, I'm going to go back to your podcast mm. archive something which amused me and I think in a way answer this question most eloquently but I heard that you Ian Wright and Alan Shearer have talked about playing through balls at just an angle so that your teammate couldn't quite shoot but would have to cross the ball back into you for the (laughs) scoring opportunity so maybe that (laughs) maybe that says
1: that is a joke okay Um, yeah we were kidding on that but there is a thing when you do often in certain positions where you could take people on and go yourself you do knock it wide because you feel you've got more chance to score by getting on the end of a cross than you have perhaps of going on your own. And that's, that's what we're talking about. It's not that someone's in on goal and you deliberately put it wide. So they have to cross it rather than have a shot themselves. That was the kind of in strikers joke that you say you do that. But in reality, you don't really, but what it does mean is that you get it out wide to increase the chances of you scoring the goal
0: yourself. Fair enough. And and talking of <laughs> b- belief and confidence, how did you manage nerves and poor performance? I'm putting those two things together. I mean, were there no. times when, you know, you choked under pressure? and how did, how did you manage no. those situations?
1: No, I never choked under pressure. I never felt nerves which some people think bizarre, but I I didn't, certainly not knowingly. Dealing with bad spells is is a different thing. I think I used to do silly things. I was very superstitious when I played. I'm completely the opposite now. I think I eventually worked out that being superstitious is unlucky. (laughs) What were your superstitions? Um, I had all sorts. I used to certainly get changed in the same order of things that I would ordinarily do. I would never shoot at goal in the warm-up. If I scored, didn't want to use one up in a game at a point where it doesn't count, I would... Would change my shirt at halftime if I hadn't scored in the first half and leave it on if I'd scored. If I went two or three games without a goal, and yes, that did happen occasionally, um, yeah. I would get a haircut. So if ever you saw me with long hair, really long hair, you'd know I was in a really good goal yeah. scoring. But the truth is about superstition. It's about peace of mind and changing the psyche when things are going badly by doing something that has worked for you. Therefore, it gives you a confidence and you feel positive going into a game rather than negative. It's just tiny fractions, tiny percentages, but I think ultimately that's why I did those things when I play
0: I think in sport in a world of high randomness and uncertainty it's an attempt <laughs> to impose some kind of control over proceedings when so much of it yeah. is out of your control
1: exactly especially when it's going wrong when, you, when you're when you scoring goals it's hitting your backside and going in you hit the inside of the post it goes in the game feels easy and then sometimes you go in these spells where it hits your backside and it goes wide and you hit the inside of the post and it goes along the line and doesn't go in and rather than look at yourself and blame yourself which negativity breeds poor play if you can t- just think of something else, blame something else, then it can make a difference. I'm, t- I'm basically just trying to justify the bonkersness of some of my superstitions. There. Yeah,
0: but superstition is incredibly prevalent in so many sports. You're not by yes. no means alone in that. But, oh, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> but so carry got on, on the subject of form. Did you ever use sort of visualization techniques when you are perfecting your shooting and scoring? Or was it always pure instinct?
1: I didn't use visionary. I mean, that's kind of a modern thing. I don't think it was even a thing back in the day. It was probably with golf you used to picture your shot and I certainly did it in golf. In football, the only incident you can actually replicate completely is the penalty. So I would hit like 50 penalties once I got onto penalties, which I didn't until I was in my late 20s, unfortunately, which cost me a lot of goals. Then I started to practice and visualize those things. But... Everything else in football, you're never in the same situation twice. So, what do you visualize? If you take free kicks, I would imagine, but I never took a free kick in my life. But apart from that, it's about movement. It's about gambling on attacking space and hoping that the ball goes in that space, getting in front of defenders, doing it that way. Then you'll have an easy tap in. But 20 times out of 21, the ball will go elsewhere. The moment it goes where you actually gamble on it going, you've got an easy chance, and everyone goes, Oh, he's in the right place at the right time. He did nothing all game. And they miss all the runs that you make. So, you make the runs and you think about the game a lot but the visualization aspect of football I don't think it works you can picture yourself scoring a goal but what does that actually mean it's not a static sport like golf where you can visualize each shot I don't see how you can actually sit there and you can think about yourself scoring a goal and all that but is that going to improve you I, I don't know
0: well maybe the only the example might be in set play maybe it might be penalty or free kick which is a static well that's my
1: point exactly that's yeah point. but Penalty's in free play penalties yes yeah, In free play, no, and I never took free kicks, so only in penalties, really, yeah.
0: I mean, I do find it incredible that for someone who's taken penalties in World Cup finals, that yeah. you talk of no nerves. I mean, as you probably know now, as a spectator, it's incredibly nerve-wracking just watching the bloody thing. I get
1: nervous watching. More nervous. I get nervous watching when it's my team, yeah, than I did play... Well, when you're watching, you can't do anything about it. When you're playing, you're actually in control. It's down to you. And there was part of me, and I, it's kind of in this strange, masochistic way, that almost like being in that position, because take the World Cup penalties, for example, two in the quarterfinal against Cameroon, one in the shootout against Germany. You're in a position where most mortals never get the opportunity to show how much nerve you've got. And that's what a penalty is, and especially in the first ever penalty I took for England was eight minutes to go against Cameroon in the quarterfinals of the well. World Cup. And, but What an opportunity to show how ballsy you can be. And I quite reveled in that in a way, which is probably a positive way of looking at a situation that could go wrong. I never felt that way. For me, it was like, wow, I've got a great chance to score. And that's what I live for. I live for great chances to score. And you can't get many better chances than a penalty where the goalkeeper has to stand on his line. So for me, it was, wow, great. Chance to score, chance yeah. to show what I'm made of. You know, that's the difference,
0: I think. now makes sense. Let's talk about team dynamics. And firstly, the factors that make a successful dressing room tick and gel. So let's bring this to life. If we assess the fortunes of the two English clubs that dominated your career, and that's Leicester and Tottenham in terms of number of games, at least. What was it, or is it, about the former, that's Leicester, that enabled them to win the Premier League with arguably a less glamorous ensemble of players than the latter? I
1: don't know. For me, it's still something that's truly unbelievable. It was a miracle, sporting miracle. I think the biggest team sporting miracle that I can think of in my lifetime. I mean, there might be some a sport in America, they might say something, like, win baseball, or something, but I don't follow those sports particularly. But for me, it just couldn't happen. You've got a group of journeymen and players that have been kind of not used at other clubs. And then you've got a couple of young players that they'd found from the French League in Cante and Mare and a guy that they brought in from non-league football called Vardy and then somehow they started winning and the season before they avoided relegation by winning seven of the last nine games to just avoid relegation they were pretty much down so the kind of miraculous stuff started then but what happened in the next season was just incredible and I still can't to the life of me explain it or understand it beyond the fact that there was a lot of luck involved because they hardly got any injuries which is important the confidence factor of getting off to a good start and then carrying it on and also that the giants of our game the big clubs were all in transition at that particular stage so they weren't as perhaps strong as they normally are but Leicester won the league by 10 points 10 points the Premier League with a back four of of Danny Simpson Robert Huth Wes Morgan and Christian Fuchs with all due respect, you know, <laughs> but it was Canton in front of them that made such a difference. But I mean, I did that I tweet in, I think it was November or December, saying that if Leicester win the league, I'll do the first match of the day of the following season in just my underwear. And I, I remember the show well. It, yeah, well, exactly. And, and, and I knew when I did that tweet, I 100% categorically knew without any shadow of doubt that Leicester wouldn't win the league that was going to happen they had a good start we have seen that before with teams then they were going to fade away but they didn't fade away and they kept going and going and it was magical and I've got three of my sons that support Leicester like I do and towards the latter stages of the season the last seven or eight weeks every game of Leicester was shifted to a Sunday for Sky so that meant I didn't have to do it while I was at work and I'd come home when we watched them together and it was so nerve-wracking and the closer they got to winning the league the more nerve-wracking it got. In fact, it was like insufferable watching these matches, but they kept winning like 1-0, 1-0, 1-0, 2-0. And it was like, my God, this might actually happen. And the closer it got to it looking like it was going to happen, the more I feared it not happening because I thought if it doesn't happen now, it would be just heartbreaking really heartbreaking and somehow they just did it and it was it was beautiful and I got emotional I was crying with my boys and it was gorgeous how it happened I'll never answer that it's but a miracle
0: they were clearly an outlier but let me bring it back down yeah. the themes of your career let me put it this way what character mix then makes a well-functioning team anomalies mm. aside perhaps bring that to life with the players in your day who embodied the different mm. character types best whether for your club or, or England
1: that's a difficult question to actually get types of characters people talk about leaders but what does that mean I mean, is that someone who shouts on the pitch a lot or is that someone that leads by example in the terms of their quality of their football? I think there's probably a mix of both. You need people to doge you on, although in professional football, most players, if you're not motivated, then you're not going to reach the top anyway. So it's a mixture of things. It's a blend. It's a balance of abilities in certain positions. It's about having really good defensive kind of players and also really good attacking style of players. But within that framework, you've got to get a balance between attack and defense, and you've got to get a balance in terms of how your team lines up. You can't be a little bit too strong on the right side rather than the left and vice versa, because you've got to have a balance if you're going to be a really good side. But in terms of the characters and personalities, well, that's more of a difficult one. You've got to have people that will not fold under pressure. You've got to have people that have that win it all cost mentality. Um, you can't all be the same, so you've got to have enough. And again, it comes down to balance of, of the right strength to have a successful side.
0: But talking of someone else you know well, Paul Gascoigne, injuries mm-hmm. aside, do you think if Gazza was starting his career now, do you think his life trajectory would be very different or... Is his personality type such that no managers or modern support structures could control yeah. his nature?
1: It's very hypothetical about it with the modern game and the help players receive off the pitch in terms of the mental aspects of the game. So it's uh, it's hard to answer that. Would he have been better in his day with a different manager? No. No. I used to listen to hear them, the people saying about if Alex Ferguson had got him at Manchester United, it would have been all different. Manchester's a different place to London. If you know Gaz's mentality and how he is, it wouldn't have made any difference he had Terry Venables who was fantastic as, with him and did as well as you could possibly do with Gaza, and brought out some great moments and Gaza did have some incredible moments throughout his career but his personality is his personality and it probably one of the assets of his game was also that personality but it was also his weakness you know we've seen it with other individuals like Diego Maradona. So sometimes with genius comes flaws or call it what you like. But Gaza was Gaza. No one would have changed. No one. It wouldn't have made any difference if he'd have played for for a different manager because he was in many ways unmanageable. And that was both good at times and bad at times.
0: I mean, this is a slightly sort of selfish remark, just digressing, but his Mm. free kick in the 91 (laughs) Cup final against Arsenal (laughs) remains embedded and blazoned on my memory. It's just one of my favourites. And uh,
1: mine too. Yeah Nine.
0: you were in the game Let's go back to managers You mentioned Nine. Terry Venables Which managers and coaches Did you love playing for And, and as a follow up mm. to that What's the effect on performance When you've got a strong bond With the coach or manager
1: uh, I think it's always Going to improve things If you've got If the players have a bond With their manager I was lucky I played some Really really great managers From Jot Wallace at the start Who technically and tactically Wasn't by a long way The best I played with But for a young man In his team He was perfect for me Because he taught me How to live How to give myself the best possible chance to succeed in, in life and in football in particular. Then I had Gordon Milne, who was kind of the opposite, but calming and very tactically adept. And then, of course, I had Howard Kendall at Everton as well, only for one season, sadly, because, you know, because they sold me to Barcelona. But that was the best team I played for. And he was great fun and also a great manager, hugely charismatic. And then Terry Venner was with Barcelona and Tottenham and, and Bobby Robson as well with England. So, yeah, I had some really big personalities and I was lucky in that because I think that makes a difference to, to a player. I always had the confidence of them and that, that was an important thing as well.
0: And Of course you played in three different countries, five different clubs, plus the England national team. Were there marked differences in how teammate relationships worked, how dressing room hierarchies played out, how a coach behaved with his players, general club cultures across countries? Or was, was football always the leveller which smoothed over any of these differences?
1: To a degree it is a leveller, football, because you know it's still the same sport, whether you play and in England, Spain, or even Japan in that stage, i didn't play much because of injury but take Barcelona for example it's still the same sport there's slightly different nuances but there's still the same humor in the dressing room and that kind of thing there's still the same drive to be successful that all good clubs will naturally have amongst their players and their management so there are many similarities but I don't think there are that many differences beyond style of play when I went to Barcelona there was a different kind of style in Spanish football than there was in the old English league which is still prevalent to this day so you know, there was adjustments. I mean, I remember playing in my first game there and the ball went out to the opposition's left back. And as you did in those days, when you played in English football at 4-4-2, as one of the strikers on that side of the pitch, you would run over to the fullback and try and make some half-hearted or supposedly full-hearted effort to try and intercept the ball as they whacked it down the line and i remember doing that two or three times in the first half and i came in at halftime and about three of the players came what are you doing i said what do you, what do you mean he said what well, why no you don't chase over there you're here to score goals you stay in the middle and i thought hallelujah this is beautiful i don't have to do that silly running all the time anymore so there were a few cultural differences but everything was you know designed to bring out the best and then the problem was then i played the Barcelona for three years i came back to england at the top And then I'd stop doing that chasing thing. And people started calling me lazy. (laughs) <laughs> but I just got out of it, you know, that, that's not what we did over there. So I kind of got so used to that other way, and which I obviously quite like. But then when I came back, people saying, oh, he's lazy. He doesn't run around. I'm thinking, oh, God. So I'd start getting back into doing that.
0: But when you came back from Barcelona to Spurs, I was going to ask, did you, were you a very different person and player, apart from you have sort of forgotten about mm. the chasing back bit, but were you a more sophisticated player with more nuance to your game? Were you a different personality?
1: Yes, probably. I was probably much more mature as well. I went from my mid-20s to my late-20s. I'd learned another language. I'd lived a different culture. It was a wonderful experience. When I came back, I was probably, I think, different in many ways, but mostly Due to maturity, I think I'd improved as a player because I was quite a late developer anyway. I didn't get into the England team until I was 24, 25. So it took me time. I wasn't like, you know, seeing all these players now at 19, 18, 20, getting in the England team. And there weren't too many of those back then, but, you know, it took me a long time. So I was, my development was... I always had that raw pace, cool finishing, et cetera. But technical side of my game took a lot of work to get up to speed. That's why I was a bit behind in that sense. So I continued to learn. And and obviously you learn a lot from playing in a different league and a different style of football. All of a sudden I went out there from everyone playing high lines and pushing up and offside to teams sitting really deep. Um, like we'll see now sometimes. And half of my goals before I went to Barcelona were balls over the top and me getting behind defences. You couldn't score those kind of goals anymore, very rarely. So I had to focus more on attacking space in the box and crosses and through balls, et cetera, than I ever could the ball over the top. I
0: want to change tack and go back to your early years. You talked about when you first got capped uh, for England, but when you were growing yeah. up, did you play lots of sports or was it always an only football? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did athletics because I was quick. Uh, I did cricket. I love cricket. I always played cricket in the summer and and football in the winter, but I never played a game of rugby. No, I didn't play much. Not when I was at school, and then I used to play snooker after training when I started football. So, I mean, I'm a lover of sport, passionate about sport. I think it's love nothing better than watching different sports, um, particularly cricket, golf, as well as football, obviously. Uh, I like tennis as well. I'm not, I've ever played it. But yeah, I, I love most sports.
0: The question of generalization versus specialization, I think is an interesting one because research actually shows that when you try a range of activities before specializing, it does make you a better, yeah. more versatile, accomplished mm. player. I mean, there are good examples of that. Roger Federer is one. He didn't actually focus on tennis yeah. till he was 14 or 15. I think in football, Peter Schmeichel yeah. played handball at quite a high level because football, mm-hmm. particularly nowadays, on the other hand, tends to promote the opposite approach, which is that clubs want to sweep up kids as young as possible. Now, financially, yeah. I I get it. I mean, do you think it's really best for their development to join academies and specialise so young? I mean, five-year-olds, of course, don't always know what they want to do or haven't had enough time to discover wider interests.
1: Well, again, it's striking a balance, I think, is important. I think, yes, I think it's good that the the academies are actually teaching kids properly now in terms of how they play, whereas it's only, what, a decade ago that we still played in this country. All our kids were playing on full-size pitches, even at six, seven years old. It was madness. And everyone used to wonder why we just whacked it down the other end of the pitch that's because they used to the only way you could get to the far end of the pitch was to boot it and they used to get the biggest kid at the back that could kick it the furthest it was absurd no other country in the world did that and then we changed it and then academy started teaching kids skills and about passing and about possession and about keeping the ball and about space and all these kind of things and now lo and behold surprise surprise we've all of a sudden we're producing hundreds of brilliant young footballers which is great in terms of their overall development I don't know how kids how much time they spend on other sports and other recreations I imagine they play other sports because most kids that are good at one sport are good at lots of sports so I, I think they'll probably do that at their school have them play hopefully cricket or tennis or whatever sport that they want to play so I'm not sure how the academies normally what do they do they might probably train on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night after school and maybe Saturday morning because one of my boys was at Chelsea's academy that's what they did but it didn't stop him playing cricket and other stuff so hopefully they've got time to play other sports because I think you're right I don't think it can do you any harm and it's going to improve you in different skills and spatial awareness and confidence and all sorts of
0: different things absolutely let's talk about something I'll call selection bias and the question is do you think a woman can manage a football team at the highest level today in the men's game
1: Yes, well, there's, there are a number of managers at the top of the game that have never played any kind of high level. So why the sex would mean that someone couldn't manage, I've no idea. So, I, yeah, anyone can manage. I think it's very difficult if you've not played the game at a certain level, but some managers have done it and done it very, very successfully. So it's just probably harder to get the opportunities and you've got to go through it from an early stage. But I don't see why a woman couldn't manage a team at the top level if she's got what it takes.
0: You know, logically correct and totally agree. And, and the microcosm of that, the quality of female punditry, I mean, just as an as an angle on that, highlights yeah. that, yes from my yeah. perspective. But maybe the better question is, is, do you think it will happen in the Premier League in the next decade?
1: I think it could well happen. Not necessarily in the Premier League, but I certainly think in the Football League. And then if they do well, then it could go into the Premier League. But I wouldn't be surprised if someone gets a job in the next four or five years in a relatively high level of the game.
0: It's a tricky question because I, I suspect I know what you're going to say. But thinking yeah. back to the 80s, Certainly, would you and your teammates have been comfortable being managed by a woman?
1: It's very difficult to go back 30-odd years, isn't it? Because the game's moved on. And also the popularity of the women's game now is zillion times what it was when I played. In fact, it was virtually non-existent in this country, sadly. We are behind everyone else. Thankfully, now it's catching up because the more people that play football, whatever their sex, the better it is for those of us in the game because it's greater popularity. And the quality of the women's football has improved immeasurably, even over the last five, 10 years. So therefore, there'll be more women coaches, There's so more go. Into it. But if you'd have just from our time, if you'd have just said that here's a woman that's going to coach football, well, where would she have come from? So it's, I think it's slightly hypothetical and slightly unfair, that question. So I don't know how it would have been greeted.
0: Fair deflection then.
1: <laughs> no, but it's, but they just, it just wasn't the thing. You'd hardly ever see a female even watching a football match, let alone playing professional football like they play now. So if you asked me if I was in a team now, you said, right, your team from back then now I was playing in the Premier League or the modern era. Would you accept a woman as a coach? You'd go, of course we would. If she knows what she's doing, absolutely.
0: But do you think cricket or a rugby coach could do the job in football, and vice versa? No. How how no. how easily are they are they transferable?
1: No. Not at all. There's totally different tactics, techniques. How does a football coach teach a batsman to bat or a golfer how to swing a golf club or vice versa? How does a guy that's t- taught people all his life the techniques of cricket teach a striker how to score goals? Not that I've ever played with a coach who can teach a striker how to score goals because they right. can't. Um, I know way more than any coach or manager that ever taught. Way more. So it's very specialised in many ways and a teacher can teach a kid to play cricket and to play football. But if you're talking about elite levels of sport, you can't just, I mean, I'm sure someone that's a top cricket coach who may have been a top football coach on the side, that's the only way it could work. Probably you can't suddenly someone who's never taught football in their life, suddenly the, the football coach, I'm not so sure. You could man manage people and you know all that, but could you set a team out to play and use the tactics? I'm not so sure.
0: Now, I'm going to move to a last question before we get into the quickfire because I'm a little conscious of time. So I'm leaving out big chunks of fascinating stuff, but we shall move through. So we started with a question about your definition of self-confidence. And I'm going to end with a slightly abstract one, but... What did winning and losing mean to you? Was it as simple as the results, or were there other contributors?
1: Well, it's just to talk about winning and losing, obviously the result is the most um, important thing. Well, it felt like it meant the world, but it didn't really at the time, because you're judged by success and failure in sport. But sometimes you'd be less disappointed than you would be at other times about certain defeats. Say you lost, but you felt you played really well, and you perhaps scored a goal or two and lost, you'd be still gutted about the result, but the degree of satisfaction perhaps in your own performance if you lost badly and played like a dog then that's completely ruined your weekend or your whole week, really. But winning was always great, but it would be even greater if you played brilliantly yourself and contributed with a goal or two. So, you know, there are levels of winning and there are levels of losing.
0: Yeah, because there's another way I might ask the question, which is that, you know, it's about about memories in the end. When you hear rugby union players in particular talk about what they remember most, of course, it's the victories and you learn from defeat and all that. But what they often talk about, and it reflects the physicality in the game of really putting everything of your body and mind on the line is those moments Mm -hmm. in the dressing room when you're having the beer, when you're lying out, you've given everything and you just look at each other and you have those kind of silent looks and go, we did that together. And that's what people often talk about. I wonder whether that sort of thing translates into the football dressing room as well.
1: Well, it does. We wouldn't be lying there with a beer and lying down and all that stuff because they're a bit soft. <laughs> no, it's like, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, you give your all. You don't beat each other up like in rugby and that scrum stuff and all that very strange sport, I think. But yeah, of course, that togetherness of winning a big game and a big moment, it's a beautiful thing. It's what you play for. And the same when you lose because you're in it together, so to speak. But the giving your all is, I mean, that's a kind of prerequisite of performing in the team sport. So, you know, if, if you come off the pitch and don't feel you've given your all then I think that's probably a rarity even if it's in the subconscious and you feel like your supporters will go I oh, didn't really try today and when I hear that I always think no 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 it's not that it's not it's never that you know you cannot reach the top levels in sport with having an attitude where you don't care believe you me players care in whatever's top if the top level players in whatever sport they might have a bad day their confidence might be affected and that affects their overall performance but they always care and it sometimes winds me up when I Hear people saying that you know that they don't.
0: I fully agree. It just reminded me where we started talking about what might call some of your early imposter syndrome. It's kind of curious Mm. in a sport which is so meritocratic in a way. You don't play sort of two hundred times between Leicester and Spurs. You don't get eighty caps for England and score forty eight goals. But it's it's curious to have that kind of Mm. syndrome or to have any lack of self confidence when you know to play in the Premier League or what was equivalent in your day. You don't get there by luck or nepotism, right?
1: No, no, certainly you can't do that in football. No chance. I think what it was. it was just that I was tiny growing up. I didn't reach puberty until I was 17. So I didn't really start growing until my late teens. So I was always behind everyone else. You know, even players in my year, I never got in the county team when I was growing up. I got in Leicester boys, but I didn't get in the Leicestershire team. I played in the Sunday team. We were a really good Sunday team, but there were four or five players on that Sunday team that were clearly better than I was at that point. So, you know, this is genuinely my own thoughts, but I was always quick. And then when I did start to grow and then I got into the reserves and even though I thought, oh, blind, me, this is a big jump I still managed to score goals and the same when I got in the first team with some of my heroes I'm thinking Christ this will find me out but I think it was just because I, I was delayed in my early years but it was actually quite a surprise Leicester took me when I was 16 to be honest because I was small but they put me on diets and all kinds of things trying to get me bigger but and then I this suddenly went boom and I grew four inches in about four months when I was I think 19 18 19 quite late
0: good shall we do some quick fire Fire away. Right. Don't think about these too much. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you?
1: (laughs) How can you not think much about that? I've been been on the planet. I've been on the planet for over 60 years. What's the kindest thing anyone's done for me? Oh, God. I I don't know. I don't know. I think what my parents did nine months before I was born.
0: All right. Fair enough. Accept. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm very conscious that when I say don't (laughs) think about this too much, be spontaneous. And then you sort of ask someone a rather thoughtful question like, the kindest mm. thing ever. Okay, we'll accept mm. that. Here's another one you'll like. What's your most powerful memory? Leicester winning the league. Ah, good. That's a good one. Tell us something interesting about yourself, most people don't know. Of
1: course. I think everyone knows everything about me now. I'm trying to think of things, and then I think everyone knows that, like cooking, for example.
0: Give us an anecdote from the 1990 World Cup with Gaza after the quarter or semi final win.
1: Oh, uh, that's easy because we were about to play Germany in the semi-final and, you know, Gazza was always hyper and we did a little walk in the morning and then Gazza was playing, Bobby Robson found Gazza playing tennis on the court at the hotel. I think, with the, I think it might have been against a German hunter some <laughs> or something and he was screaming at him, game, game, get rested, you've got a game tonight.
0: Brilliant. So, okay, which book do you gift most regularly? if any oh, it. it could yeah, be your well, own I,
1: I, well yeah i mean probably um i've i just i've never really done one so but you haven't done not, one okay not, well i've not done an autobiography but i've done you know i've done books about various things with fun like podcast books and stuff but um what would I, I don't know um that's a hell of a question as well i'll tell you what's good what kind of recommendation biography
0: rod stewart rod okay
1: i've just re- read it not long ago it's brilliant
0: good stuff What's your desert island music? And you can answer that in any Uh, way you like, from song to album to genre. I
1: I mistakenly did um, desert island disc in 1990, and anyone knows me that I'm not clue about music, and. um, it Often comes back to haunt me when that list is played out.
0: Yeah, okay. I should check. I should check that one out. Let's. I mean, that's you did please, oh, please, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, we'll put we'll put down match of the day theme tune for that question. Yeah.
1: Well, actually, the match of the day theme tune wasn't in it, but the theme tune to cricket was.
0: Oh yeah, great. I love that one as well. By Buckethead
1: yeah. and the MGs. That one
0: yeah but both yeah. of those are, are, are <laughs> iconic yeah i know you always think of yeah, richie yeah. benno as soon as uh, you hear them. exactly exactly, um, the exactly and lastly winding down away from work tell me a bit about your hobbies
1: well cooking now i i mentioned before i love cooking it's, a, it's my new passion in life i like reading as well i also very interested in fine wine Ooh. so i do partake occasionally red in particular
0: any recommendation bordeaux
1: I've, I, many i mean i'm a big bordeaux man but I I love you know, Palmer and Margo and all those
0: beautiful oh, points. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Good. I think we are going to be in time, except with that, Gary, let me just Great. close by thanking you enormously for your time, your honesty, your humour, and the insider yeah. track you've given us into the mind of a professional footballer. So yeah. thank you, and I hope we'll talk again another day. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, Gary. And there ends my BS exploration with Gary. It's a testament to the interest, breadth and appeal of behavioural science, and this podcast, that people like Gary Lineker are keen to join me and share stories and insights so openly and warmly. Talking of which, in my next episode, I'm switching back to politics and social psychology in conversation with writer, Times commentator and Conservative Party moderniser, Moderate, Maven and former advisor to William Hague, George Osborne and David Cameron, that's Danny Finkelstein. It's a brilliant conversation which I'm excited to share with you all. If you like this episode, please go to Twitter right now and give Gary, at Gary Lineker, and me, at Daniel SJ Ross, a nice review. We'd both love that. And if you haven't subscribed to my Substack yet, where you can find all my pods and articles, do so at a load and do follow the pods on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Till next time.